How is it going, everybody? This is Sean Barnes. I want to welcome you to episode 40 of The Way of the Wolf. On the show today, we have a very special guest. We met online in uh, the 365 Driven community. He has a podcast of his own called Go Lead Everything, Mr. Philip Swanson. Welcome to the show. Sean, pleasure to be here, my man. Thanks for having me. All right. So first and foremost, I I want you to share a little bit about your story. But before we dive into this, one of the things that I always talk to people about is the importance of just starting and how the reality is you're going to suck. Now, I had to preface what I'm about to say with that because I went and listened to your very first podcast and it was beautiful. (laughs) And I thought, are you kidding me? This guy comes out of the gate just swinging for the fences. So very, very well done. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the importance of first impressions and perception. But before we do, uh, I wanted to say thank you for putting out such great content. And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you find yourself in a leadership role and kind of going down this path of wanting to help others? Yeah, Sean. Well, thanks for the kind words, man. That means a lot, dude. I, uh, man, jumping into podcasting has been a journey. And I was really nervous to, to kind of just put myself out there. And I've been thinking about it for a long time. And joining the society, getting around folks like you, getting around folks like Tony, you know, it's just kind of this kick in the pants that I was looking for to go do some of the things that have been on my heart and been on my soul for quite a while. So, you know, I was thrilled to do it. I probably didn't launch my podcast in the most, uh, I guess, professional way. Mm-hmm. I just kind of like fired up Anchor and started recording one yeah. day, you know, so it ended up being what it was. But, you know, my journey through leadership, I was a three-sport guy through high school. Um, I like to say I was uh, Chicago-born, Detroit-raised, and Houston-grown. All right. So was, I've been kind of all over the Midwest. My dad was a engineer, worked in energy, moved around, followed the pipeline around. And when I was in high school, I was playing sports, you know, so we, you know, we grew up playing basketball, football, baseball, ended up being a three sport captain in high school. And that was really when I started to step into leadership. And and by leadership, I mean, really serving people and doing things that made me uncomfortable. So we were on a football team, we didn't have a lot of vocal leadership, and we needed it. And our coach asked us, Hey, you know, can you captain step up can like, we need more vocal leadership from you, the players. And I didn't want to do that. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know if you've ever been through that, but yeah. you know, it's, it can be uncomfortable to kind of put yourself out in a group of people where you know you're going to face criticism. You know the people, you know the types of people they are, they are, and you know that people are going to push back when you stand for something that that's bigger than uh, than yourself. So, you know, that was really the first time. And my mom gave me great advice. She said, "Look, you need to be what the team needs you to be," and that has really always kind of resonated with me going forward. You know, it carried me to college where I ended up being a two-year captain at my university playing baseball at Wayne State in Detroit. And then after I got out of school, I very quickly fell into other leadership roles. You know, I've kind of I've kind of just always kind of ended up in these leadership positions. And it wasn't like I was seeking it. You know, you can even find a video of me from my senior year of college online talking about how I just wanted to be an engineer who worked in energy, right? Like, that's all I really wanted to do. And... Um, I ended up being president of my congregation here in Houston. I ended up being the president of my HOA. I ended up on a jury, my first jury I was ever on. They all picked me to be the jury foreman. You know, so it was just it was kind of just like, hey, you know, maybe there's something to this more than just, you know, my insecurity and I need to uh, get out of my own way and yeah. um, serve people. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about your transition from playing sports in, in high school and college and kind of being thrust into these leadership roles that you weren't really 
keen on stepping into and then stepping into a corporate career. I believe you're in, in engineering, if I remember correctly, and, and kind of stepping into a leadership role there. And like, talk to me about that shift in your mindset of what triggered it, other than, you know, the comment that you shared about that your mom shared with you. But talk to me a little bit more about that, because that's one of the things that I find whenever I'm coaching people, they're so hesitant, so nervous, so scared to to take that step. What, mm-hmm. what are some of the things that helped you really step into it and embrace it? I think for me, it was a realization that, um, you know, I think most people are dealing with insecurities, right? And um, I heard a guy, Chris Baldwin, he's a, he has these 10X speaker events. He's a speaking, speaking coach. I don't know if you know Chris, but mm-hmm. he, he says that he's got this 20, 40, 60 rule. I think he says it's 18, 40, 60. I call it 20, 40, 60 just because it's round numbers. But um, when you're 20 years old, you're always thinking about what other people think. And then when you're 40 years old, you stop caring what other people think. And by the time you're 60, you realize nobody's thinking about you at all. And I had that no one's thinking about you realization really early, probably in my early 20s. I kind of just had this wake up moment of like, no one really cares what what I'm doing. I don't really care what all these other people are doing. Uh, So why am I so worried to step up and put myself out there and do what I feel called to do. And, and, you know, I think those polls, like we have, we have the calling to stand, to stand, to speak. You'll be sitting in a meeting and you're like, man, somebody needs to say something right now. You know, you'll feel that. And I think that internal pull is, is kind of your calling pulling you out and, and you need to be really conscious and aware of it and listen to it. And I, I think for me, it was just, you know, a combination of a lot of factors and, getting a lot of opportunities. And then when I got those opportunities, I decided, okay, you know, these people have, have asked me to do this. You know, it wasn't like, Hey, I'm raising my hand to be a, to be a leader. You know, they had asked me to do it. So I felt that uh, the calling that, that uh, I owed them more, right? Like I, I owed it to them to serve them because they were looking for it. Yeah. And, and that's how, kind of how I see leadership. Okay. I like it. So I'm curious from your perspective, what do you think or feel prompted others to try to encourage you or pull you into those leadership roles? I, you know, I've wondered, <laughs> I've wondered this a lot. <laughs> what, what do you think called people to, to pull you into some of those roles? So I, I think a lot of it kind of comes down to your personal brand that you build for yourself over time. Sure. And for me, one of the things my grandfather always taught me is dress for the job you want, not the one you have. Mm -hmm. So your physical appearance is just one component of building your brand. That helps with first impressions, which is something that I do want us to talk about. Yeah. But you have your your physical appearance, your presence, your level of confidence, your uh, how knowledgeable you may be in Mm -hmm. any given topic or domain. So I think there's a... um, a number of things that contribute to people's brand. And ultimately, I think people want to follow somebody who has a strong brand and a mm-hmm. reputation or someone that thinks, hey, I admire that person. I want to be more like that person. How do I do that? And so they, there's kind of this, this pull, like, mm-hmm. hey, how can we, especially if you look at senior leadership, hey, how do we get this person who has this strong brand to play a more significant role in our organization and hopefully build more leaders over time and help mm-hmm. build and develop them. And that's something that, you know, it took me a number of years 
to kind of come to this this realization and 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 see that leadership is is now my passion. It used to be data center architecture, WAN design, all the IT geeky stuff, sure. which I still love and I'm still passionate about. Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of it just kind of comes down to the brand that you build for yourself. And you have to actually put a concerted effort into building that brand because mm-hmm. if your brand is being built, whether you're focusing on it or not. Yeah. So why not spend a little bit of time, do your hair, sure. Wear you know wear nice clothes. You never know who you're going to run into. Hundred yeah. percent. Right. Right. So that's kind of my initial thoughts. I like that. You know, I I think I think that has a huge part of it. It's that reputation. It's I, I like to tell people that I'm coaching you got to be willing to stand alone. And I compare it, I, I like to say being alone in a room. I don't know if you've ever been to a networking event. I'm sure you've been to many. Lots of people who've been to networking events, they'll be hesitant to go talk with, with strangers. You know, they just kind of sit with people they know. They're hesitant to step out there and talk with people. And one thing I like to encourage people to do is go to those events alone. Because a lot of times, like, it's, you know, it's like girls going to the bathroom. Like, hey, let's go to the bathroom together. Like, if you're not willing to stand alone in a room, then that means you probably need to focus more outward instead of inward. You're very inwardly focused. And once you turn that focus outward on what other people are doing, how I can help them, how I can serve them, and when you talk with them, you get to know them, you understand that they're not really concerned or like all those insecurities you had aren't even real. Mm-hmm. You, you know, they're imaginary. So you... Focus outward. You got to be alone in a room and be willing to stand alone as a leader. Because I, you know, the the common thing you'll hear from great leaders is, um, you know, what makes a leader is they have followers, right? But they didn't always have followers. Mm-hmm. Every, every leader starts alone. They have to step out alone and be willing to stand alone. And if they're willing to do that, people that see them step out, they'll feel something inside of them that draw, and they'll go, "Hey, you know, something that he's saying or she's saying." I, I resonate with that, and, and they're willing to stand up and say something about it. I'm going to go follow them. Yeah, I like that. I like that. So, all right, let's switch gears just a little bit. Actually, you know, we're going to go down a, a, a tangent kind of based on first impressions. And um, so one of the things that I found interesting is in the 365 driven calls or we've only been on a few like two maybe that we were both on at the same time yeah yeah but in that short period of time i was very impressed by you and you didn't really say a whole lot there was just something about your your presence your stature i i, I don't know i don't know exactly what it what it was but do you think that that is something that is kind of ingrained in us or built in us during our formative years? Or is this something, is that a skill or a trait that can be learned over time? I'm curious on whenever it just comes to to presence, how do you increase that presence mm. or build a more impressive presence? You know, it's funny. When I, I talk with a lot of people online, like yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And most of, most of those relationships, they've They've started over the last year in COVID, right? Mm-hmm. So I haven't really seen a lot of those people in person. But mm-hmm. there's a few times I've, I've ended up meeting folks. I'm actually wondering your perception. Like when I've met some of those people, they're like, "Dude, I had no idea you were so big." Yeah, you were like six three, like two eighty, two sixty, whatever I am now. You know, I fluctuate, but like most people are like, "Dude, I didn't realize you were so big." I know. I'm I'm six one. I did not expect to look up <laughs> to see you walk in the door. That's not something I see very often. <laughs> right. So I've always kind of had this thing in my head, like, hey, I'm kind of tall and big. Like maybe that's why people are or at least part of from a 
presence perspective, because mm-hmm. you know there is something to the fact that a lot of CEOs and people that run companies and things are, you know, they are a little taller typically. Mm-hmm. Do I think that matters in leadership? No, mm-hmm. but I do think obviously our um, body language has a lot to do with how people perceive us. You know, way before we even open our mouth, right? Yeah. So I've always wondered about it, Sean, and I'm not sure I can really put my finger on it, but I do know lots of people have. To, they would they would tell me that they would think I was an extroverted person and I'm, I'm not at all. And I think a lot of, uh, people that are speakers and put themselves out there, they're, they're really actually quite introverted, but they've taught themselves how to be extroverted. They've taught themselves how to do things that make other people feel comfortable. And, um, I, my mom, when I was growing up, she would sit around the table with us and read us etiquette books by Emily post. So, through my whole life, I've heard a lot of advice on etiquette, how to you know act at dinners, how to speak. I've, I've had a lot of feedback that I speak pretty well. Um, one of the things I'm really working on though is being able to to really pull emotions with my speaking because I'm you know I'm good at telling people things and I, I'm I want to get better at telling stories and really you know influencing people with with their emotions and being able to connect with people better. Yeah, because I'm I've always been a teller and I think that's the engineer in me. We you know we just tell people stuff as opposed to, you know, really listening to what they need to hear mm-hmm. and, and asking questions first. So that's actually a, a, a great topic. Whenever it comes to being able to speak to your target audience and relate to them in a way that draws them in to your story. And, you know, it's funny, I was having a, a conversation with, with Philip Sessions this morning, actually, oh, wow. about... Being able to step in, have that conversation with somebody and um, relate to them in a way that, that makes sense. And, and the example that I cited was in Jocko Willink's books, Extreme Ownership, Dichotomy Leadership. One of the things that I really appreciate is they talk a lot about the Battle of Ramadi and their experiences and their lessons learned. But then the second half of each chapter, they go through and relate it to something that they had experienced in Echelon Front in the corporate world. And so a lot of executives and, well, people that live in corporate America, they're reading this, and, and while some of them have an, probably have an appreciation of history and what happened there, them being able to see how it directly correlates to something that they can relate to. Mm-hmm. And I always found that very interesting on, on how they layered that into the book so that people will actually connect and mm-hmm. it pulls people in to the conversation so that you can elicit some sort of an emotional response sure. so that they see, hey, there is a lesson here. How do I extract the most value out of this mm-hmm. lesson? And so it sounds like you're kind of figuring that out and what works best for you in, in your speaking. So I guess my question is, what tricks have you learned so far? Well, I'll share a couple things that I learned through my athletic career. And... Um, one of them that you just reminded me of with, with what you were describing there, because I think you're right on, is getting the feeling. And I don't know if you've ever – are you an athlete? You play baseball? Growing uh, up? I, I played a lot of sports in junior high and high school, but I haven't played anything since. Okay, well, if you're an athlete, if you played sports, you know, if, if you've ever played baseball and you've hit a baseball and you hit it perfect and it almost felt like a feather and, like, the ball just went flying. Like, even the worst baseball players at some point probably hit a ball that felt real good – you know, went real far, whatever. It might have been a home run. And they might not be able to do it again and again and again, right away at least, but, you know, they've done it and they've felt it and they've felt that feeling 
of success. You know, you've probably felt it in hockey with a slap shot. You could feel it, you know, tennis with the right serve, all, all these sports, right? You, you get that feeling of success. And I think when you're, when you're trying to become really good at something, when you're trying to build expertise, when you're trying to become confident, most people think you just need to like act confident. And what they don't realize is confidence comes over time. And it, it starts with committing to doing something. And then once you commit, you have to have courage to take action. And then once you have the courage to take action, you, knowing you're going to fail, right? Knowing you're going to go through some hardships. Once you have that courage to take action, then you'll build new capability. And after you have new capability, that's when that confidence really starts to come because you, you've done it. You've been out there. You've been through the ups and downs. You've gotten that feeling of success. And I think a lot of people who are, are trying to be coachable, they just listen to what their coach says and they try to do exactly what they say as opposed to constantly questioning. And this is what I've, what I've really learned is you got to ask questions. You got to ask better questions to understand if the other person really gets what you're saying. Like how, like, are they relating to this the way I want them to? Cause then if they're not, I need to adjust my message so that they can, because whatever I'm saying they don't, they're, it's not resonating. They don't get it. So it, it's, to me, it's just asking better questions. And I think that's good advice, whether you're coaching other people or whether you're trying to lead yourself, you know, asking better questions is a great way to improve your mindset. So one of the things that comes to mind whenever I hear that, and it, phenomenal points, by the way, but one of the things that does come to mind for me is there is a book that I read a few years ago, uh, Good to Great. I'm sure you've yeah, probably great read book. it. And they talk a, a lot about this flywheel effect. Yeah. And that's something that whenever I'm having coaching conversations or just kind of mentoring people is getting them to realize, while you may not have a lot of confidence right now, it's those those efforts that you're making now to push mm -hmm. and push and push. And over time, it will start building momentum. And the mm -hmm. effort that you have to put into it starts to starts to subside a little bit. You're still going to always have to have constant, consistent pressure on it to, to move that flywheel, but it does get easier over time. And I've had people that have approached me and said, I want to, I want to be able to walk into a room and have a commanding presence and just speak on, on any topic, kind of like you do. How do you do it? I was like, well, I mean, I've been doing it for 20 years. It, right. <laughs> right. It doesn't happen overnight. Sure. And one of the things that I have started trying to focus on with my the coaching program whenever I work with people is, okay, how do I take all of these lessons that I've learned over the past two decades and deliver it in a way where people can relate and then encourage them to step out so they have that exposure, so they have that opportunity to mm -hmm. experience some of these challenges. Because another thing that I've learned is you can beat somebody over the head with something for a, with a hammer, and they're never going to get it until they live it. Oh, yeah. 100%. Once they live it, it clicks. And I think that circles back around to the people being able to relate. And if you can share a story in a meaningful way and people mm -hmm. can relate based on previous experiences, that's whenever you get them. And that's when the lessons really hit home. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. Yeah. yeah. The, when, when you're coaching people that aren't willing to take action, mm -hmm. then you're, you're wasting time. Yeah. And so, one of the things we focus heavily on is leading hungry people. We don't drag lazy people. And most people, like if I asked you, what's the most important part of leadership that makes leaders great? What would you, what would you respond with? What would you think? I would say that you have to 
check your ego and realize that it's not about you. Mm-hmm. It's about everyone else. Mm-hmm. And for me, once once I came to that realization, that's when things started kind of shifting for me uh, as as a leader. So I, I grew up without like any money at all. And, and for me, like early in my career, it was always about, hey, what role can I attain? What salary mm-hmm. can I get? Can I get that VP title? And probably about six years or so ago, I started to turn a corner and realize that it, it's not about me. Mm-hmm. It's it's about, hey, how can I help this person be as successful as possible? What can right. I do to guide this person or empower this person? Mm-hmm. And what I realized is while it's no longer about me, all ships rise with the tide. And yeah. so if you're building a strong team, inevitably you're going to rise with that team, sure. but it can't be about you. I think it's really cool listening to your podcast, how you asked for like a, a role in HR as an IT guy. And and it's really cool. You know, and I think it's the coolest part, they actually believed in you enough to take a chance on you. So I, I know I shared that story on, on one of my early episodes and I was on another podcast a few months back, uh, the heathen culture podcast. And, and we kind of dove into that story a little bit deeper. Yeah. And one of the things that Henry, the host of that show asked me, he said, so, so you went in, you had the conversation, you asked for, the role leading HR, and you were shot down. He said no. And he's like, but instead of just like going back, licking your wounds and hiding in your closet, a few days later, you went back Mm -hmm. and asked again. I said, absolutely, because I saw an opportunity and there was... There was a calling there. Mm -hmm. There was a huge vacuum, an issue that we had had. There had been four VPs of HR in four years before me. And I was like, this is a problem. And while I don't know employment law and I don't know payroll, I do know how to build teams and I know structure. Mm -hmm. And so, and to be completely transparent, our director of leadership development, Jason Hitchcock at the time, I did go back and I was like, man, that sucked. That did not go how I thought it was going to go. And he and I kind of went back and forth and talked through it and, and, he kind of helped give me that confidence to, to go back into the office and yeah. ask a second time, but I was more prepared that sure. second time. And so that kind of leads into the importance of having mentors and, and guides in your life. And we were peers, and we were pretty much peers throughout the entirety of, of our um, experience working together mm-hmm. over that time. But I always looked up to him, and then he always came to me on any time he was building his his program mm-hmm. and needed to figure out how to wrap some structure around it because he was a, a phenomenal leader, retired mm-hmm. Navy SEAL Master Chief. Yeah, and sounds like a really good leader. Yeah, yeah, absolutely incredible. And so we leaned on one another and and helped each other, helped build each other up. Sure. And I think that's another common misconception is you don't have to have some some leader that's way up here to be a mentor. You can have peers that mm-hmm. encourage and push and things like that. Sorry, I went down a little bit. No, you're good. So where I was going with that point, and I think you hit on it huge, the best leaders that I know, they don't have teams of a bunch of lazy people. They're effective recruiters. And if you can't recruit people that are willing to be coachable and hear mm-hmm. what you got to say and actually take action on the things that you tell them, mm-hmm. you know, think about a, um, Nick Saban or, you know, one of these athletic coaches, if they couldn't recruit guys that actually wanted to be on the field, wanted to put in the time off the field, wanted to do the work and were willing to learn the plays and learn the playbook and all that stuff, you know, if they were recruiting lazy guys, 
they wouldn't be winning championships no matter how good a coach or leader they were, mm-hmm. right? So you got to be an effective recruiter. You got to find the right people, and you got to surround yourself with those people that are going to cheer you on and root for you. Because if you're around a bunch of people that are just kind of like, meh, and like they're not actually like rooting for you to succeed, like they might even not agree with what you're doing as long as it's legal, ethical, moral. Though, if they're really your friend, you know they should be cheering you on and want you to succeed. And if they're not, they're probably not your friend. In reality, that's a good point. And I also think, you know, it's important to to be able to differentiate between, hey, someone, this is this person's going to encourage you and cheer you on. But then also you need somebody that's going to check you and not somebody who's going to come in and bash you all the time and say, no, you're not you. You'll never make it. You'll never make it. But if you are way off the rails, Mm -hmm. you need to have a true friend, mentor or someone in your life to say, hey, man, like. You're not going down the right path. Let's, let's sure. figure out how to pull this back together. Yeah, and which we're we're kind of bouncing around a question that I had, which is what does it mean to be coachable? And and we've kind of gone all danced all around that exact question just over yeah, yeah, yeah. the past few minutes. But I'm curious, is there anything else that you want to add to that? Well, one thing I would say is you really need to seek out a coach that is doing what you want to do, has the relationships you want to have, and you know, advice from people who are willing to check you, you know, having mentors that are willing to check you, I hundred percent, I think is so important. But one thing you got to keep in mind, there's a lot of people that love you and care for you that probably aren't doing what you want to do. They don't have the lifestyle you want to have. They don't have the relationships you want. And so as much as they love you and as much as they want the best for you, their advice, it might suck, Sean, (laughs) it really might suck. And so you really got to be careful who you're listening to mm-hmm. and make sure you're listening to people that actually are doing and getting the results that you want. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's something I, I think a lot of people struggle with is because, you know, they're, they're stuck in a circle. That's why that, that whole saying, you know, the five people you're closest with, you'll become them. It's because you're in that circle and you're hearing that mindset. And so the more you can surround yourself with people that have the mindset of where you're going as opposed to where you've been, mm-hmm. then that's going to just accelerate you on your journey. You know, it's so challenging when people are, they hear, they hear that feedback of, hey, you are the sum of those around you. Mm-hmm. You know, you're the, you're the sum of what the five people you spend the most time with. And they want to be more. But maybe they grew up with, with kind of the wrong crowd, the wrong friends, and it can be very, very challenging for people to step away mm-hmm. from one group because you know maybe they spent 15, 20 years growing up with, with their best friend, but their best friend isn't on that same life path. Trying to diverge from that and start spending time with, with those people, those like-minded individuals that are driven, that want more, that you know, if, if, if you want to be a millionaire, surround yourself with four other millionaires and you'll be the fifth or you know, whatever the yeah, saying yeah, yeah. is. But that is, that's tough yeah. because change is hard. First of all, but then also there's so much emotion and history tied to that. Mm -hmm. Do you have any guidance or advice for people that try to make that change? It is hard, Sean. It's really hard because you love, I mean, you love people, right? And I'm not, I'm not saying you don't love people still or you ignore them or don't care about what they got going on. Like you, you got family, you got friends, you care about them, you love them. You just need to really be careful how you spend your energy. You just need to be conscious of it and and deliberate and purposeful with those relationships and don't allow those relationships to take energy and send you backwards in a trajectory where you're not wanting to go. Because that, that's that's what I see is you, you end up 
just by default being around people because that's what you've always done. And you allow those people to continually put doubts and negative mindset in your head that causes you to not take the action that you would have probably taken if you had other other external things. So it's all about pouring in audiobooks, you know, reading, listening to podcasts, right? Like getting around people and and counterbalancing the other mindset in your life, right? You you have to have more of where you're going and less of where you don't mm-hmm. want to be. And I do think too, this is something that I've struggled with over the last year, kind of putting myself out there. And every entrepreneur I think does, you, you're going to feel brokenness before you break through. You are going to feel like self-doubt, insecurity. Like, am I really good at this? You know, am I even an entrepreneur? Everybody in my life's told me I'm not. They've said, you know, Phil, you're an entrepreneur. You're not an entrepreneur. And, and it's like I'm constantly dealt with this doubt and this brokenness and like, what am I doing? And then it's, it's literally just been like the last couple months where I've started to, from that action, from that time, from the relationships, from getting around the right people, pouring in better mindset, that confidence is starting to, to come more naturally, right? It's coming, it's coming after taking that action. And, and your faith is really shown by your works, and your faith is proven through your actions, through what you do. So, you know, if you really believe, you got to take the action. You're not going to ever feel like it at first. You know, you'll go through imposter syndrome and all that, but stick to it. And every good entrepreneur knows once, once they've broken through that, you know, it's a whole, a whole new life. I love that, man. Just such incredible message. I would actually end the podcast on it, but there's so much more that we're about to talk about. That is, you're you're absolutely right. And you know, as you were kind of sharing that, one of the things that also comes to me and is, is that is super important as a as a leader, or just being successful in general, is self awareness. We've all encountered people that are unself aware, and I've seen a tremendous amount of damage done to organizations by people that are not self-aware. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, one, your perspective on that, and then two, is that something that you can overcome? Overcome a lack of self-awareness? I think self-awareness is... Um, I don't I don't know if it's my baseball training, Sean, or, you know, if, when you're in baseball... I was an outfielder, right? So many people who watch a baseball game, they don't understand what's even happening on the field. They're like, oh, cool, the ball got hit, you know. You'll hear this because, like, they'll hit a pop fly and everyone thinks it's a home run and it's, like, in the infield. You know what I mean? So guys that actually played baseball, we get kind of annoyed going to games, or at least I do, because, like, you know, people have no clue what's going on. But um, there's so many, like, plays, right? So everybody on the field is thinking, okay, if this guy hits the ball there, if this guy hits the ball there, like I know I need to go here and he's got to go there. And then if he hits it over there, I got to relay it. So you're always thinking like three, four, five, six steps ahead of like, where am I going to go if this happens? And I find myself really always thinking and perceiving and being, being very aware of my surroundings. I'd like to consider myself a fairly self-aware person. And so if, if you're out there and you don't think so, please, please uh, show me my blind spots. But, um, you know, I think there's a, there's a point where self-awareness can become um, almost a fear, like perfectionist mindset. And I think I let my self-awareness kind of cripple me through my 20s 
um, through my college baseball career and kind of early in my, my corporate career, just because I, I think I was a little so self-aware, I, I let it almost become self-consciousness as opposed to um, just being aware and, and confident in who I am. So I think that, you know, if you're going to overcome a lack of self-awareness, it starts with just having conversations with people who really care about you, that you're close with, and ask them, you know, what you're good at, what you're bad at. You know, there's personality tests you can take and kind of get to know yourself a little bit. You know, those have their pros and cons, right? But, um, you know, you don't want to put yourself in a box because everyone's unique. But those tools are really good to help you understand who you are and and understand how you relate to other people better. And um, so that's like if I was dealing with a lack of self-awareness, that's probably where I'd start. Yeah, I like that. So I, I created a YouTube video, God, earlier in the year that talks about dealing with people that are not very self-aware and how to approach having those conversations. But you did, you touched on something that I have a deep appreciation for. It's uh, personality profile assessments. And there's, there's Hogan and Disc and Berkman and T, there's Enneagram. There's all sorts of different assessments. And, you know, one of the things that I've, I've found is I think there's, there's value in each for me personally, I tend to focus more on disc profiles because it's it's very simplistic in nature, but sure. it also scales very well from a team perspective because you can plot out where everybody's dot is at on the disc and then start taking more of a macro view of, hey, well, I'm going to go through, give an example. Whenever I started leading human resources, uh, there's probably 16, 17 people on the team at that point in time. So I'm a C, like all the way out to the edge, but then I have a shaded tail that goes straight up between D and I. So hmm. a little bit of anomaly uh, being that far out in the C spectrum, but then having that shading straight up into action. And so I was that C, our payroll manager was a C, and everybody else on the HR team was an I. Yeah. So once I saw that, I had an epiphany because our payroll manager was Poor thing. She was pulling her hair out because the data was a mess all the time. Nobody could get anything right in the system. And training, 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 they never could get it right. And once it, it hit me like a ton of bricks, well, we've got all these eyes that are out here acting like cruise directors, partying. They don't care about the data. Sure. And so it scales in that you can plot out what your entire team looks like and then figure out, hey... As we start moving forward, we probably need to inject some more C's and S's and maybe a couple of D's into this team mm -hmm. over time so that it is more well-rounded. Sure. Now, to circle back around to just personality profiles in general, I think they all have their pros and cons. You can't really put somebody in a box because you can't define somebody by you know these these questions. It's an indicator and it's a starting point to help people understand, but then also it helps you learn how to relate to people as a jumping off point and a 100%. starting point. Yeah, I like that a lot. I like yeah. that. There's another book uh, I've read recently called Wired That Way. Okay, it's a uh, by a Christian author that it's kind of like a Christian perspective on, mm -hmm. on personality profiles, um, based on uh, you know early Greek philosophers sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think they all are to some degree, but yeah, interesting, interesting book, but um, did want to share with you that um, you reminded me of good to great and talking about the, you know, getting the right people in the right seat on the bus. I think organizations fail at that so often. They, they are like firing people that are just like, they literally put them in a position to fail 
that wasn't, you know, the right seat for them, they could have been in a seat, you know, two seats over and been completely effective and value add to the organization. But instead it's just like, well, you're, you know, you're gone. Uh, you know, that makes me so sad to see. And, you know, that, that is one thing, you know, all you leaders out there, if you're looking at your teams, focus on making sure that, you know, how many of you have even asked your people what they want to do or what drives them and motivates them to give more? And, you know, what would they need from you as compensation, be it vacation, be it more flexibility in their job, be it more, you know, whatever, higher compensation? What do they need from you to, to be a, a bigger value contributor? Right. And I, honestly, like, I don't think leaders are asking those types of questions of their people at all. No, they're not. And, and we're kind of delving into the Peter principle. You see people that like a phenomenal engineer by default, they're going to lead the team of engineers right. and then maybe even be a vice president. And they, they don't understand. And I'm not picking on engineers. I have, you know, friends that are engineers. You say hey, that, Sean. throw it out there. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I see a, a lot of engineers that by default, they become the manager or the director or the VP, right. and they're leading all these engineers. And they don't realize that it takes an entirely different skill set to be a vice president of engineering than it does to be an individual contributor and the best engineer on the team. 100%. And I think a lot of companies lose sight of that and they say, oh, well, John's a great engineer. Let's go ahead and promote him. And and then the team starts struggling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe engineers might not be the, the best uh, analogy to use because a lot of engineers, they're very like-minded and you just got like one is usually the smartest engineer in the room. Sure, um, sure. But when it comes to scaling that organization out, it can prove to be challenging because that leader isn't taking the time to invest in leadership skills. Maybe they're right. just dismissing it. Oh, I don't sure. worry about none of that stuff. Um, but then businesses also aren't taking the time to invest in their people and build their leadership skills. And so that's one of the things that I always appreciated about where I work now is during the downturn of 15 and 16, we had let go of 50% of our company. Mm -hmm. And I was leading HR at this point in time. And our CEO hired a director of leadership development, Jason Hitchcock. He was on episode 10 or 11, I believe. And whenever I saw the paperwork come across, I was scratching my head like, we just obliterated this company. We cut it in half. Yeah. And we're hiring someone to focus on leadership. And at the time, it was, it was just lost on me. Sure. And I quickly realized how brilliant that move was yeah. to invest in a role and then over... Uh, subsequent years, we, they ended up building a team of people mm -hmm. that were in, in leadership development. And they moved, oh God, probably 80 to 100 people through the program a year. Wow. And the impact that that had on the organization was substantial. Yeah, I think as we come out of this pandemic, the power dynamic has completely flipped. And now it's the employees that have all the power as opposed to the employers. You're seeing this mass movement of people from one company to the next because they have this freedom and they, mm. they want, they know what they want now and mm. they realize they can get it at other places. <laughs> so I'm projecting or guessing that in the coming years, businesses are going to start to really come around and realize the value of leadership development and building their leaders sure. and building a strong culture. Mm -hmm. So my hope is that people like you, yourself and I were kind of in this market at the right time where we can impact as many lives as possible. 100%. Yeah, the, the whole um, 
you know, making sure you've got the right team around you and you got leaders that can build teams. You know, I, I think many times, you know, I'm not sure if you've dealt with this at all, but like, do, do companies even ask the people like for feedback on their leaders? Is that a common thing that happens? Should it happen? I think it, I think it should. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of times people are probably scared to have that conversation for on, on both ends. Like some leaders don't want feedback about them. And then employees are probably scared to have that conversation to say, like, if I say anything bad about my boss, yeah, they fear my, that yeah. their boss has their lives in their hands. Well, and that, I think that touches on a really important thing, though. I think it's that culture piece because, like, you weren't afraid to go back to your superior, mm-hmm. whoever it was, and mm-hmm. ask them twice for an HR VP role, right? Mm-hmm. Like they had, they had given you and created a culture where you weren't, you know, you didn't have that fear. Now you could always just not have that fear or, or whatever, and just put yourself out there and who knows what will happen. But, you know, creating that culture where people are actually comfortable stepping out and sharing what's on their mind is so huge. And I think a lot of times it's easy to create sort of a fear-based culture. And, and I think they, I think it's created accidentally. Like, I don't think it's purposeful creation of a fear-based culture. I think it's, I think it's just stemming from leadership. What do you think? So such an incredible point. And I think that one of the things that I've seen, so because of the nature of my career and being in oil and gas for the past 15 years, as you're well aware, this is a highly acquisitive and um, cyclical industry. So I've been fortunate to have been part of a almost 50, I think like 47 or 48 acquisitions and integrations wow. over the years, a lot. Yeah. So um, with I'd probably say 30 of those were at a previous employer focused just on the, the IT integration side of it. Sure. But my role with my current employer, I've, I've kind of played an all-encompassing role. We integrate IT, obviously HR, and then I would project manage, kind of be the, the integration manager for safety and transportation, operations, manufacturing, supply chain, kind of all aspects. of. So I feel very fortunate to have been part of that. Yeah process for a lot of acquisitions. Sounds now, like great experience. Oh, incredible experience. I, I loved it. Stressful. Yeah. Very stressful. But I've learned so much in, in the process. Now, how that ties back to culture is I've been very fortunate to see cultures of a lot of different businesses. When you go through that many acquisitions, that many integrations, you get the opportunity to sit down with the senior leadership, with the employees, all the personnel, and you're able to see a strong culture. It's difficult to define, but when yeah. you see it, oh yeah, you know it. Oh yeah. And the the most recent acquisition that I was a part of, it was at the October of 2018. The culture built by that company was the strongest I've seen of any in my entire career. Just these people lived and breathed mm-hmm. the culture and would do absolutely anything, whatever it took. Mm-hmm. And it was so inspiring and motivational to see what had been created. Yeah. Now, I think as companies grow and scale, that becomes increasingly difficult, especially if the business is highly acquisitive. You have all of these little subcultures that it takes time to integrate them into kind of an an overarching uh, culture. We had, um, oh God, I'm forgetting... 
I'm drawing a blank on the general's name that came and spoke at one of our executive strategy sessions, but he was he was talking about his experience in leading the the SEALs and Marines and and Green Berets and and they all had their own culture. And one of the things he found is he would he would pull out a couple of Green Berets and drop them in with SEALs. And at mm. first they were butting heads like I'm better, I'm better, whatnot. Well then they realized there's a lot of similarities here. Mm-hmm. And so kind of crossbreeding or cross pollinating those cultures can help. Mm-hmm. As businesses grow in scale, especially after they go public or have an IPO, what I have observed is it very much appears that the focus then shifts towards public perception. Mm-hmm. Are you meeting shareholder um, expectations? You know, mm-hmm. shareholder value. Those are all the things that become increasingly important. And I and I think that some businesses lose sight of the fact that. If you take care of your employees and you take care of your customers, the dollars take care of themselves. Hundred percent. I think what what you said about just being able to sense culture, I'm reminded of. Uh, I love the movie Remember the Titans and uh, the two linebackers, the the black one and the white guy. They're they're arguing back and forth, kind of button heads, and, and the black guy goes to the white guy. I can't remember his name. Adrian, I think he says, "Attitude reflect leadership," and. That is such a huge thing because when, when you're dealing with people at companies, when you're dealing with people in life in general, right, you, you're sensing their attitude and you feel it. Like we all get those those feelings. Like you can just feel it like in a town hall, in a meeting, whatever. Like you can sense the culture in that room. You can sense the vibe. And as a leader, you need to be a thermostat and not a thermometer. You need to set the temperature in the room and everyone's attitude in that room is going to be reflective on you as a leader and that thermostat, that temperature you're setting. So that culture thing, it's such a fine, it's so nuanced. I I 100% agree, but man, you can feel it, you know. You you can, and here's the other thing. You know, it's similar to to brand. It's being built whether you're focusing on it or not. Right. And as a leader, it's important for you to actually put a concerted effort and focus on making sure that you're building that trusting environment where people feel safe Mm -hmm. and can have conversations all the way up the chain of command. 100%. 100%. You you mentioned stressors earlier Mm -hmm. and being stressed. I just wanted to make a comment. This is something I was thinking a lot about recently is like, I always thought, you know, and and many people probably think once they get to a certain point in their life, like their stress is just going to like go away or or whatever. Like, oh, once I make six figures, all my stress will be gone, whatever. Like the stressors don't go away. They actually increase. And the only thing that happens is you get better. So you constantly just need to focus on getting yourself better in general, in all areas, being a husband, being a father, being a, you know, servant at your church, being whatever you're doing leader at your company, if you focus on getting better, your stresses still aren't going to go away. They're, they're just going to become different because guess what? You're going you're gonna to get more responsibility poured on you, good and faithful servant. So, you know, be ready for that. And, and don't think that stress and stressors coming your way is a bad thing. Just focus on getting better at, at handling them. So you, you touched on it. What I was about to say is the stressors get they become different. Yeah. And whenever I think about early in my career, we had a, a significant uh, SAN server outage that brought the entire company down globally for wow. 36 hours. And I mean, massive, massive it amounts like of, a mess. of stra- It was. It was. Oh, I was so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a thing. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. now, 
the stressors become different because now due to the nature of my role leading IT, HR, and now safety and transportation and ESG and all these other areas that, that I now have responsibility for, mm-hmm. the, it's no longer about this server that I'm working on. It's about the lives of all of these people across all of these teams mm-hmm. that I'm focusing on. So the stress is there. It's just different. Right. And it's no longer about stressors that, that are directly related to you and something you're doing as much as how how am I supporting all of these people? How am I making sure their lives are that they have opportunities to be successful? What you know, what drives them, all of these things. And then sure. if I make a, a bad decision, it impacts a lot of people's lives, maybe not in the same way as that server going down, but it does impact a lot of people's lives. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the big takeaways is like your stressors, they're never going to go away, but they are going to change. So one other thing on on making sure people are on the, the right seat on the bus, mm-hmm. and you had, you had mentioned something about are people asking the question. I feel very fortunate in that as the scope of my role has has grown over the years and then the fact that I've kind of learned more about HR and leadership and, and it's become a passion of mine, I have the ability to freely navigate through the organization because, one, I was the third employee, and then, two... <laughs> The, the nature of my role. Sure. And so I kind of know everybody involved. And one of the things that I've, I was having a conversation with our COO just a few weeks ago and, and he asked me, he said, Hey, do we have people that we can start to leverage across multiple functions? His concern and rightfully so is, are there people in the organization that are maybe only at 60% capacity just due to the nature of what's going on in the business, can we leverage that other 40% somewhere else? Hmm. And so in recent weeks, I've started having conversations with people that kind of fit into that mold and the looks on their faces, it's, it's hard to describe how they felt from that conversation, just sheer appreciation for someone sitting down and having that conversation and just asking, Hey, what are you passionate about? What do you want to do? Where do you see yourself in mm-hmm. the future? And and I think a lot of that comes from just a lack of, of leadership leaders focusing on that specifically, making sure that they are spending time developing their, their people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is something that is missed in a lot of organizations. And man, that's one more component of building that strong culture. If an employee knows that leadership is looking out for them, and trying to figure out, hey, what path makes the most sense, mm-hmm. that's huge. Yeah. That generates that element of stickiness and trust with your employees. They're not right. going to go anywhere. Yeah. You know, you just basically described sales. And me as an engineer, I was annoyed with salespeople my whole life. I'm like, I don't need a salesperson. What's the cost? What's the I'll crunch the numbers. Like, does this make sense? Blah, blah, blah. I was so ignorant. So ignorant, Sean. Like <laughs> sales and leadership are the two highest paid professions in the world, period. End the conversation. If you don't realize that sales is what you're doing in just about everything you do every day, whether, you know, if you don't know it, then you're not a good salesperson. And if you are realizing now that you're not a good salesperson, you need to go figure out how to be better in the area of sales. And a lot of it just starts with asking the right questions. And so I think what you saw, Sean, in asking these questions of your people is you, you, you saw what happens when you start selling a culture. You saw what happens when you start asking the right questions of your people that are going to get them to sell themselves on 
your company, on your culture and putting in more time. And that that's really the nuance. You know, sales is something I've been heavily focused on this last year, just getting better because, you know, I am I, I was not at the time a salesperson. I don't consider myself really a salesperson now. But, man, it, being good at selling is something that every good leader needs to do. They do it whether they know it or not. You're influencing people with every business decision, every presentation you give, every time you get up and give a town hall. Leaders need that skill set, whether they, you know, whether they're actually consciously building it or it just kind of comes natural to them. You know, you, you need that skill set. Agreed, hundred percent. All right, so let's pivot a little bit into social media. So, uh, whenever it comes to the selling side of it, uh, you know, I've listened to some of your 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 podcasts and you've been guests on on other podcasts, and you kind of shared your experience in terms of your struggles. Now, this is something that I've had a Facebook page and Instagram page for ever, it seems. Um, really just been more of a lurker, never really posted that much. But in January of this year, whenever I kind of started all of this, I was like, man, I have to get out there. I have to start putting myself out there. Talk to the listeners a little bit about your experience in that. I like the the word lurker. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good description. No, so, you know, I had a Facebook going through college and it was, let's see, so I, I graduated 2012. It was right at like the Obama election, I think. And like end of the world was coming. The Mayan calendar was ending, right? Like, and I just, my, I had all these people from my high school and college, you know, just thousands of people that weren't really my friends, but you know, they're, they're people I know. And, you know, there's a bunch of pictures of me like dressed up like Slipknot at Halloween, you know, I'm like Mick Thompson with my mask and you got my, you know, forearm tats. And so I, I was going into the professional world and I was like, man, just screw this. I'm just going to delete my Facebook. So I deleted it or deactivated it or whatever. Yeah. It's probably still out there. But um, yeah, I didn't get on Instagram. I didn't have a Twitter. I had no social. I was on LinkedIn, but it was only like a, a professional thing. And I didn't perceive LinkedIn as a social network like it is now. You know, it's actually a great platform for organic reach. And, and if you're not on LinkedIn, you probably should be. Um, but Putting myself out there, starting, you know, it was 2020, early 2020, I went and actually created accounts on Instagram and Twitter and, and some of these platforms. Got a Facebook again. But it was a it was a shift in my mentality of, okay, I'm not on here to post pictures of my dog or whatever, even though I do that sometimes. Um, but it's fun it's funny too that those those are the content pieces that actually get the most reactions from people. And so I think what social media does is it allows, as you're thinking about your personal brand, as you're thinking about your reputation, it's not really about who you know. It's about who knows you and what they think of you. And so when you have a tool like social media where you can put yourself out there in a way where, you know, you're not being fake, but you're putting yourself out there in a way that's deliberate, that, you know, you're consciously creating a brand for yourself, that's just a very powerful tool. Instead of just allowing the world to put their perceptions on you, mm-hmm. you're putting your your conscious, deliberate identity out into the world. And, um, you know, leveraging those tools for marketing, I think, is a smart thing to do. And um, that's that's what I've been doing. So one of the things that, that I've learned is how important it is to make sure that you're engaging in the, the right content in the right way. So it's very easy, especially with just the absolute chaos that exists in the world these days, to to 
like those mm, those stories that elicit f- emotions of frustration. Mm-hmm. And the way these algorithms are designed, if uh, designed, if you like it, they're going to put more of that in front of you. Sure. And so you have to, you touched on it, you have to be deliberate mm-hmm. with how you use the platform. You right. have to make sure that you're engaging with the right type of content to mm-hmm. be able to drive that that mindset that you're you're looking for, and then also making sure that you're engaging with the right types of, of people. But it's a slippery slope. If you oh, sure. like one or two things, yeah. bam, it's, it's in front Now it's of you. just lingering. Like if you linger on it for a little bit, right, yeah. it's going to start showing you yeah. more. But, you know, another cool thing about it is it gives you access to people you would never have access to. Like, you know, you can just get on and DM Gary Vee, yeah. and he's going to maybe reply to you, mm-hmm. right? Like, the access, the the information, it basically allows you to create a circle. So I would say this too, you know, if you got a bunch of junk coming to your social media feeds, clean it out, get the people, you know, it's the surrounding yourself with those five people, right? It can be more than five, right? Surround yourself with a bunch of people putting out content that's going to grow you. And that way, when you do linger and you do see posts, it's not the junk, it's mm-hmm. the good stuff that yep. you actually want to put in your head. Mm-hmm. So let's shift gears a little bit. Talk about goals and setting goals. In your experience, what has been the most successful approach in setting goals for, let's just say, for your professional career? What mm-hmm. goals have you set for yourself, and what was it, what was it like achieving those goals sure. or not achieving those goals? You know, I had a goal to be an engineer in energy, and uh, I accomplished that one. Check. Check the box, and that was, that was like the highest goal I had. Okay. And then I, I did that and was like, what am I... What am I supposed to do now? Mm-hmm. Is this going to be the next <laughs> 35 years? So, you know, goal setting is a funny thing to me, Sean, because I think there's a lot of different approaches to it. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you work for a, a corporation, a big corporation, there's, you know, there's certain uh, there's certain reporting and certain KPIs and things that need to be met. And, uh, you know, there's communication up through, through ladders and chains and things. So, you know, one of the things that I like to do is really stretch myself on goals and, um, you know, there's different schools of thought. You know, there's smart goals, right? It's got to be achievable, realistic. Well, who's defining achievable and realistic? Mm-hmm. And then what are the consequences if I don't meet it, right? So I think the biggest thing that that people can struggle with with goal setting is being afraid to set goals that they won't meet and what are going to be the consequences of those. So what they'll do is they'll set goals that are pretty lame and, yeah, I met my goals. Like, who cares, you know? And so I, I'm I'm one who likes to push myself, always does, wants to go above and beyond, always has, and continue to do that. And I do think sometimes, though, that that can create perceptions like you're not not accomplishing some of the goals you set, and you know that's just part of it. So in in reading some of Grant Cardone's content, he always talks about set those 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 big audacious goals, you know, 10 X, right. If you want to, if your revenue targets a hundred thousand, make it a million. Yeah. And if you come in at, at 300,000, well, I mean, hell, you're already well above what your initial goal was. Sure. So setting those goals way, way up there to push yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and it does, it does push you really hard. So for me, you know, I had certain goals, like I mentioned earlier, it was kind of Early in my career, it was all about me. And like I wanted to achieve a certain salary by the time I was 30. And then by the time I was 35, I wanted a VP title. And then, and so I've set kind of big five year goals for me. And I've been able to accomplish them sometimes just by the skin of my teeth. Um, I was about (laughs) to turn 36 before I got my VP title. So just got it. But 
I think it's important to, to have those goals so that you're not just kind of floating through life or drifting through life with no sort of, of objective or, or mission, which brings me to my question. What is your mission? So before I'd say my mission, I was, what would have happened if you didn't meet that goal at 35 and didn't get that title? So I'm going to backtrack to 30. When I, the, the employer that I was at, the salary goal that I was wanting to attain, I wanted to be able to make 100000 a year. Yeah. And it, uh, all signs pointed to it not going to happen at mm-hmm. the employer that I was at. And so for me, for the majority or almost entirety of my life, I've always been one where I'll be damned. I'm going to achieve my goals. I'm going to make it happen. And I ended up leaving that employer and going to a, another company and they paid me like 125, something mm-hmm. like that. So I took drastic measures to be able to achieve that goal. Mm-hmm. Now, stepping into if I had not achieved that vice president goal, I, I really don't know. I probably would have just wrote it out to yeah. see. And so my goals for, for being 40 was I want to be either a chief information officer or have my own consulting company. Sure. And so I, I kind of said, okay, well, I'm going to set two options here. Both will... Um, both would be satisfying for sure. me, something that, that I would aspire to, to achieve. Yeah. And so what I'm seeing now is the, the company that I'm at now just not large enough in terms of scale to support a CIO. Yeah. And so last year, especially during the downturn, I started branching out and started doing this coaching stuff on mm-hmm. the side. And so I'm, I'm kind of there. It's actually doing uh, fairly well, but there's so much uncertainty in our industry, which you know, you've, yeah. you've lived it. Sure. And, and so for me, it's, it's still kind of a, hey, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it a win because I've achieved mm-hmm. one of these. Now, mm-hmm. that all just kind of feeds back into I've been always intrinsically driven my entire life. Yeah. Um, and, I'm, and I have no doubt there are goals that I have not been able to accomplish, but I didn't sit and dwell on it. I've never been one to dwell and look back. It's like, okay, well, what have I learned? Okay, now let's go back out on the attack, like stepping into HR. Yeah. Yeah. So and I think that's important. If you don't achieve that goal, okay, sure. lick your wounds, give yourself a day or you know a week, whatever time frame you need, yeah. but you get back on it. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like you're super motivated, driven guy, Sean. Uh, I love that. I I I ask because one of the things that I think some people can struggle with, and I've I've struggled with a little bit, is is identity and and allowing like a title or allowing you know a role or something like that, or you know if you don't get that VP role, is that going to mess up Sean's identity? And who Sean is? Are you going to allow those external factors to dictate your identity, or are you going to be driven by a bigger identity than, than that? Right. So that's a it's, a it's a great point, and I think one of the things that has the goals that I set for myself for whenever I turn forty have not been weighing so heavily on me because in recent years I've come to the realization that it's not about me. Mm-hmm. It's about the people that I can help, the lives that I can impact. And while I'm impacting as many lives as I can at my current employer, being able to impact lives at, at other companies, mm-hmm. at other people across the country. I mean, just some of the coaching calls I have, people are you know all over the place. And, it, and it's really become more about impacting lives. Mm-hmm. And my new goal that I've set for myself for being 45 is to impact as many lives as I possibly can. Now, 
I still need to figure out how to quantify that. If that's a, <laughs> a number or like what, you know, what does that mean? Sure. But my focus and, and mission has shifted from intrinsically, or, you know, facing inward towards me about what I can accomplish mm-hmm. and how many lives can I positively impact. So it's no, it's just, it's no longer about me anymore. Yeah, I love that. So, you know, going to my mission, I have a very similar mission. I want to impact lives and I want to grow mm-hmm. myself. And, you know, one of the reasons that I founded GLE, Go Lead Everything, is because I saw an opportunity to impact people on a whole new scale. And yeah, you can work for big organizations and, and impact thousands of people. And those thousands of people impact millions and millions of lives, right? You know, that's all good. But when you see the ways that you've impacted, like you can impact people one-on-one in, in a conversation, you know, while you're getting a haircut, right? And so many people, I think, sell themselves short that they can really create change and impact right where they are today. Like you you don't need a new job or a new title or a new anything. Like you you can be an impact and and put yourself out there and really serve and help people. You know, after putting the podcast out and starting some of the things I've started, you know, you realize and you start hearing feedback from people, you touch lives that you wouldn't have ever dreamed you could touch. And just hearing from one person makes it makes it worth it, right? So, you know, our mission, I want to create a network of millions of faithful strong leaders and we are going to change the world. This world is starving for leadership. Everybody can see it in our governments around the world. You know, who knows what to believe in the talking magic box that feeds us movies all day. You know, it's not even real. Anybody who's watching TV thinking they're watching something real, it is a scripted movie. Like, wake up and realize that you're being fed a bunch of lies. And you got to surround yourself with real people. You know, we are the people. Sean, Phil, the people in our networks. So I'm big on networking. I want to surround myself with winners. I want to surround myself with patriots. So if you're a winner and a patriot and you want to surround yourself with others, you will need help at winning at what you want to do. I can help you. I can connect you with people in my network that can help you. And we're going to go win. And hopefully being in this circle, will even expand your vision for what's even possible. I love that. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. So, man, your mission is so well thought out, more fully baked than mine. I need to, okay, I need to step it up. All right. Well, that's perfect. So that's what this is about. It's about networking with individuals that push you and drive you to be better. There you go. Now I'm going to start honing on mine. (laughs) What is the biggest piece of advice that you would give new leaders or people aspiring to step into a leadership role? Biggest piece of advice. I think it would be you need to do a couple things. Um, one of them, communication at best is poor. My grandma always said that, and it really rings true so many times. You know, I think one of the things we're constantly challenged with and everything is communicating effectively. And I would really encourage leaders to focus on their communication. And you need to train people how to communicate with you and you need to learn how to communicate with them because people communicate and want to be communicated with different ways. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. So one, I had a guy that worked for me at one time, and uh, he would hate a cold call. Like if you called him out of the blue, he hated that. 
right? But he would want you to text him and say, hey, you know, are you available? If so, you know, give me a call or whatever. And he'd call you, you know, typically right back. But just something little like that can be an, an aggravation in someone's life. Like, say you like to email. Like, no, people that just blast off emails and just create work for people all day, like, that, that is super annoying to me, right? Like, I'm a less email. We should all be doing everything we can to eliminate email as much as possible. Only send an email when absolutely necessary. Pick up the phone, call people, work something out, document via email. There's one email. There's not like 10 reply alls with 20 people on them back and forth. We've all experienced that, right? So, you know, I'm, I'm real big on efficiencies and things like that. Many people don't think through those things. And so some of those little, administ- like it sounds administrative, right? But I just think if you can reduce 10 emails for everybody every day, how much more efficient your company would be. Think about if you had people that just knew how to type or knew how to read, right? Like I, one of the things I learned how to do was, was uh, branch into speed reading. I probably like 10x my reading speed. And just being able to do that, like think about how much faster and more efficiently I can just get through email doing stuff like that. So, you know, it's, kind of, it's almost like little administrative things, but it, it's conversations with your people, asking how they want to be communicated with, teaching them how you want to be communicated with, and then just holding people accountable. Great, great points. And whenever I think about communication is something that we all do our entire life. But by and large, everyone sucks at it. Yes. They don't know how to communicate. And, and a lot of times people don't really understand even the concept of different differing personality types. Sure. And that's one of the, the huge things that has been very impactful for me in terms of learning how to effectively communicate to certain individuals. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I, I realized that, which was what, five years or so ago that I was like, oh, wait a second. There's, you know, I had heard, oh, different personality types growing up. Right, and, right. But it wasn't until I started to truly dig into it and attempt to understand it that I realized, oh, wow, mm-hmm. I've got to learn how to read this person, quickly assess where they stand, what's important to them, and sure. then how to acu- uh, accurate, effectively communicate with them. Yeah, 100%. And that has been a game changer for me, being mm-hmm. able to sit into, walk into a room, understand my target audience, if it's one person or 10 people, and know how to communicate with them. That's that's huge. Mm-hmm. So you're spot on on that. Have you ever read Chris Voss's book, Ever Split the Difference? Uh, I have it in my bookshelf. I have not started it yet. So that book and some of the advice they give in there, he talks a lot about tactical empathy and you know, asking the right questions and, and being able to use, they use what they call labels. So seems like, sounds like, looks like sort of phrases to label the other person's emotion. And that is the best way that you can show them that you understand them if you're able to label what they're feeling, right? And so, you know, creating, that book was kind of life-changing for me and being able to just create an environment where people feel heard and feel understood. You know, you, you're in this room, you, you know their personality type, so you know how they want to be communicated with to make them feel comfortable, to make them feel heard, to make them, you know, make it easy for them. That's, that's you know, it's that servant part of leadership that it's real easy to get lazy and just say, I shouldn't have to do that. And I'm just, I'm just going to type this email and send it off. It's like, oh, maybe you need to put a presentation together. Maybe, maybe you need to take some time to craft a message. And it, it's something small you know, that you think, you know, I shouldn't have to spend the time doing that maybe. But little things like that are so huge. You know, just making time for your people. It's so easy 
to allow the busyness of the workday and, oh, I got all these goals and these things and pressures to just ignore your people mm-hmm. and don't and don't dedicate time to them to give them what they need, you know, to, to show them that they're important. Yeah. Right. Like it's, it's those little things that I think, you know, for new leaders out there, don't allow the stresses, the priorities, the goals, you know, don't allow those things to keep you from doing what you need to be doing as a leader. And that's growing other leaders. That's what leaders should be doing. They should be growing people, growing other leaders in their organization. That's exactly right. And to throw a wrench into that, once you start to understand a, a person and how to effectively communicate with that person, then you have to start dealing with team meetings, or maybe you have 10 people right. in there that yeah. all want different information out of that same meeting. Yeah. I've had examples where have some sort of regular cadence of weekly, biweekly meetings, and you're covering specific content in a certain way. And you think everything's just trucking along and everything's fine. And then you hear through the grapevine, somebody's like, oh, these meetings are pointless. They're a waste of my time. Like, oh. Most meetings are that way. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's fair. So, but then you've got to pivot and adapt yeah, and you've got to figure yeah. out, okay, well, you're never going to get everyone to see 100% value in every specific or every meeting that you have. Yeah, but you if go. you can get 80, 90% of the way there, and then maybe follow up with some subsequent conversations, make sure that the right parties have the right sure. information. I think that's key. Yeah. hundred percent, mm. man. So much great content. Thank you so much. How do people reach you? Well, thank you, Sean, for having me. It's been a blast, man. If you want to find me, go to goleadeverything.com. You can get to all my socials. You can get to the podcast. You can book time with me on my calendar tool there. And for the first five people that reach out to me um, and reference the Way of the Wolf podcast, I'll give you a free hour of coaching. So if you're looking for that, come man, find me. I love that. Okay, I'm going to start doing that too. All right, man, you're just pushing me to be better and better. I like it. No, that is phenomenal. So I would highly encourage any of you listening, take him up on it. This man is phenomenal. And I'm sure that all of you have gotten a tremendous amount of value out of this conversation. I know I have. Thank you all so much. Go out there and get it done.